Hey there, fellow entrepreneurs. If you're tired of complicated domain management, I've got the solution for you, Hover.com. Hover makes registering and managing domains a breeze. Their clean interface and hassle-free experience will save you time and frustration. No upsells, no hidden fees, just straightforward domain services. Plus, Hover offers top-notch customer support. Make your life easier. Head over to foxcitiesmm.com hover and simplify your domain journey today. You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric Waltergens. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, what kind of fine death do we have today? Actually, I did... And before we go into this subject... Sure. And I don't think you have an answer for this, and I... But I'll, we'll just do it on the podcast. Oh, sure. Okay. Wow. I didn't. So an I got, unexpected question. I had a listener contact me. Oh, really? And she, she had listened to the episode, which was about the Sixth Street murder. If you remember, where the little girl. Oh, okay. Where the the husband and shoots the girl through. Yeah, yes. And this listener had asked about: Do we know anything about the children, the son, and the daughter, and okay the Gosh. I think there was a son too. Do you know anything about? Are they still around or anything like that? Or you know, I feel like I would have put something in my notes, but off the top of my head, I don't recall. Okay. Well, maybe as a homework assignment for you, you could look into that and see if we can. Yeah. Get this listener. A. She's a pretty demanding listener, so you probably want to answer a question. Okay. Or well, relief. Well, listener, so what I'm going to tell you to do is go to MilwaukeeMafia.com and look for the show notes for that episode, and you'll find things in there that most of it's the stuff that we say on air, but some of it is not, and there might be things in there that aren't. And by the time this airs, I will try to update that. So right now, as we're recording, that might not be there. But by the time you hear this, yes, it, it should, should be, be there. there. <laughs> Very so, I'll, nice. so I'll try to I'll try to add that in if it's not already there. Very cool. All right. So on to on to more pressing matters. What is our subject for today? Okay, we we have a murder. Of course, we do. And right. it's in Appleton. Well, actually, it's in Grand Chute, but I think today it's in Appleton. It was in Grand Chute at the time. Okay. For, All right. For, for, move in, for people, move in city lines here. For people who don't know, uh, who aren't familiar with the five cities, but listen to this anyway, um, Grand Chute is the suburban part of Appleton, but most people don't even really know where the line is. And well, the line is really weird, too. The line is really weird. I mean, like, the the mall is in Grand Chute, but most people would just say it's in Appleton. Appleton. Yeah. So, All right. So we got uh, Martin Jansen this time, and we're in 1968. Oh, rather recently. This might be one of our newest. It's right? one of our more recent, recent ones, ones, definitely. So Martin Jansen, he is originally from Kimberly, Wisconsin, so near Appleton. He was a veteran of the Air Force. He served in Korea. And after the war, he went to work for Kimberly Clark, like you do when you live in Kimberly. Well... Along with being a Kimberly Clark employee, he also worked part-time as a night watchman and janitor for an auto dealership, car dealership, 
in Grand Chute, a place called Cloud Buick, which no longer exists, Jesus. but it is a uh, it was out there on College Avenue. When was this? 1968. 1968, probably prior, because we happen to have a friend that worked at Cloud Buick for many years. Really? Yes. Oh. So, but I think this would be probably prior to his time of working at Cloud Buick, but not by much. So we have a friend who worked there in the 60s. Well, probably in the 70s. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, okay. So he's working as the janitor slash night watchman when, uh, what do you suppose happens? He gets killed. He gets killed. Somebody breaks in through a window, gets into the dealership office, steals about $511. So not even a huge amount of money, but they steal some money. Uh, Apparently, they didn't think anybody was going to be there. And first, they shoot him. They shoot Martin Jansen in the back of the head with a 20-gauge shotgun. And to make matters worse, after they do this, and he's clearly dead, getting shot with the 20-gauge shotgun is not a good thing. Yes. After they do this, he hits the ground. They shoot him a second time in the face. Wow. So he's he's already dead, but they're not they're not taking any chances here. So he uh, Martin Jensen is quite dead. The intruder steals a 1960 Buick, which they don't drive very far. They actually drive it to Elm Tree Bakery, which later is known as Rich Products or Rich Bakery. Okay. So it's because you may be familiar, which isn't that far away. It's just on the corner of like College and Blue Mound. Yeah, I was just going to say, isn't that literally like a block up the road? Yeah, not very far. Because Cloud Buick was right there too, right? Yeah. Like that's the new Bergstrom? I don't know that answer, but like like I said, it's like the border between like Appleton it's and Grand Chute on yeah. College Avenue. All right, so... Jansen has a wife. Her name is Lorraine. She finds it odd that her husband doesn't come home. Uh, you know, normally, even though he works at night, he comes home eventually. <laughs> uh, and it, it gets to be four in the morning and he's not back yet. So she calls, doesn't get an answer. And she heads over there herself and finds the scene not so great. Now, it's there's some conflicting information on whether she actually finds him or not, but she definitely realizes the situation isn't good. She contacts the sheriff's department who come out there, and the sheriff declares to the news, we've got to catch this guy. This guy is a real maniac, which the reason he says that is because of the second shotgun blast. Like, if you're going to rob a place and you don't expect to kill somebody, you know, you might shoot them. You probably aren't going to go back and shoot them a second time. I mean, I guess I don't know. I've never been in that situation. But but they think that this guy is just the most cold-blooded, nastiest guy. When he's brought in for autopsy, more than 40 pellets are removed from his head and region. It's wherever, you know. The shotgun pellets are all over. But mm-hmm. he shot in the head, so it's mostly his head. Early on in the investigation, the public is very helpful. They have officers and stenographers working overtime doing interviews with people who have different ideas and things that they are offering, but they have no good suspects. The Jansen family would later say that the police knew immediately who the killer was, but I don't know. I don't know if that's accurate or not, because the police continue to to deny that they knew. They will catch a guy eventually, just to be clear. Within a couple days, a man named Joe Van Lerhoven, and I may be saying that wrong, Joe Van Lerhoven of Combined Lonks is arrested, after he confesses to the crime. 
They worked together at Kimberly Clark. He did own a 20 gauge shotgun. But Van Lerhoven was at the Mile Away Tavern on Route 57 in De Pere. And from the tavern, he called the police and admitted the murder. The police arrived and realized that he probably wasn't the guy. He was probably just drunk. <laughs> Bunch of people in the bar convinced him to call in. Yeah. <laughs> they do a little investigation, quickly figure out he couldn't possibly have been the guy, but he goes to jail for eight days anyway for disorderly conduct. Because <laughs> it's not cool to waste the police's time when they're looking into a murder. About a week later, the sheriff speculates that the killing was probably done by the same man who had recently done an armed robbery at Howie's Fiesta Club, which is on West Northland in grand shoot at howie's fiesta club 335 dollars were taken a man had gone in with a 20 gauge shotgun demanded money and then fired the shotgun into the ceiling which is how they know it was a 20 gauge shotgun no one was injured but they thought that's suspicious they also thought there might be a connection to a robbery of another tavern owner who was hit in the head recently on north ballard and had 600 dollars taken from his pockets so they had somebody going around robbing people and businesses. But there's no, there was never anything like as brutal, I guess, as this robbery. Right. Right. I right. mean, this guy isn't going around and putting multiple shotgun shells in people at these other robberies. No. Okay. Now we get to our suspect. The man is Robert Mitchell of Kakana. Of course. It's got to be somebody from Kakana. <laughs> somebody from Kakana. He's a 37-year-old Thilmany pulp and paper employee. Shortly after this, uh, the burglary and murder, he robs the Howard's Grove Bank. Howard's Grove is near Sheboygan, for people who don't know. The Howard's Grove Bank of almost $8,000 with a sawed-off shotgun. He escaped in a stolen truck. And went to Evergreen Park in Sheboygan, where he then hijacked a second truck and had two city park employees drive him to downtown Sheboygan at gunpoint. Despite police roadblocks, Mitchell somehow managed to escape the city on caught. However, <laughs> I love when there's a however. <laughs> before he leaves Sheboygan, he stops at the Citizens Bank and asks to open a safety deposit box. <laughs> they open one for him where he puts in the money that he just stole from the other bank a couple miles up the road. <laughs> the cashier was suspicious of this. So when he returned a couple days later and asked to see his box, the cashier called the police and the FBI. They arrived and found, sure enough, the money in the safety deposit box was the same money that had been stolen from the other bank. Mitchell had a thirty-eight revolver on him at the time, but he did not resist arrest. Almost all of the cash from the bank robbery was recovered in the safety deposit box. So he had a little bit in his pockets with him, but it was mostly recovered pretty quick. Mitchell was immediately a suspect in the Jansen case. He had bought a car from that same dealership just days before the killing, and records did show that he bought a 20-gauge shotgun about a month before the killing. Given the fact he was from the Fox Cities, he was also now a suspect in a recent bank robbery in Sherwood, which is just a few miles away from Kakana. <laughs> Things get stranger from here. Another bank is robbed in Kenosha. It is suspected that a man named Charles Cox is the bank robber, 
along with another man who was shot and killed as he's trying to escape. But Mitchell says, no. That was me. It was me. (laughs) So he admits to it, and he tells the police, I'm not bothered by my conscience. I don't figure a man should get it for something he didn't do. By which he means, don't put Charles Cox in prison. Put me in prison. Put me in prison. (laughs) I'm the bank robber. (laughs) Uh, I'm beginning to surmise from this that this guy might have been a little cuckoo. He might have been. (laughs) He might have been. Which, by the way, I would like to put out while we have this pause in here. Yeah. For anybody that it does listen to this podcast and is not from this area. Yeah. And maybe even for the people that are from this area, Kakana is not that bad of a place. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's a fair disclaimer. I, I, I know that. Ka- all the episodes. Kakana's not that bad of a place. <laughs> I know that Gavin makes Kakana seem like a terrible place because he seems to really love people that kill people from Kakana, but there is, not everybody in Kakana kills people. No. So. No. I mean. I, if anything, I, I mean, it just comes up more often because we are both from Kukana, so I find that interesting. But, but I don't, I don't tend to think that Kukana people kill people more often. <laughs> I hope not. Um, so yeah, but I think it's worth stating that. It's appreciated. <laughs> it's appreciated. Uh, not long after this bank robbery, the FBI arrests a man named Harold Moorfield in Chicago. And they hold him for that Sherwood robbery that I had mentioned. Strangely enough, Harold Moorfield, at the time of the bank robbery, was living in the same house as Robert Mitchell. (laughs) And for those familiar with Kakana, they were living at 2500 South Sullivan Avenue, which is across the street from Electaquinney School. Okay. Moorfield had flashed his pistol and was given the money by the bank vice president, Elaine Sprangers. She described the robber as about 50 years old and kind of seedy looking. There was no evidence that Mitchell was involved, but they thought, well, he lived with him. And maybe Mitchell was the getaway driver. So he might have been involved with this one as well. Mitchell is found guilty of robbing the Howard's Grove Bank. He's sentenced to 20 years in prison. The judge says, I feel sorry for you. The sentence will be a long one. You may not realize it, but you are a dangerous man. The defense attorney asked for leniency because Mitchell had actually pleaded guilty to the bank robbery and turned himself in without violence. But the judge said that he would be released when the parole board decided he was no longer a threat. A few days later, he was given an additional five years in prison because he had tried to escape from jail before the trial. (laughs) Charles Cox at the same time, is found guilty of the Kenosha bank robbery. Uh, The jury decides that he was really the robber and Mitchell was not the robber. Uh, So even though another guy testified... I think you just said the Kenosha robbery. Yes. Did I miss... Because wasn't this also... The Kenosha one is the one that he admitted to, but really it was nowhere near at the time. Okay. Because wasn't the Cox guy also thought to be in the Sherwood one too? No, no, <laughs> I got that wrong. That's okay. Harold Moorfield. Okay, I know this is it's a little more complicated. I wish I could have made this smoother, but I'm not sure how. So the Kenosha this one, this guy's inserting himself in some random weird places. But I, I remember it right. The Kenosha guy was the guy that was with somebody, and that person died. Yes, uh, esca- trying to escape. Correct. Okay. Okay, so I just got the locations mixed up. Yes. All right. So the jury finds him guilty, and then after the fact, Mitchell is charged with perjury because they decide that his testimony 
is false. In fact, they know his testimony is false because the timesheet at Thilmanis said that he was working at the time. <laughs> so he was definitely not robbing a bank in Kenosha, which for people who don't know, is over two hours away. (laughs) So he goes away for, you know, quite some time. He's got this 20-year thing. He actually serves time in prison from 1968 until 1978. So he actually gets out after only 10 years of the 20-year sentence. But apparently he violates parole because he goes back in less than a year later and stays in prison until 1988. So he does end up serving his 20 years, just not all at once. And is there more to his story after this? Yes. There's a little bit more to go. So when he gets out after the 10 years in prison the first time, apparently somehow he is able to get a girlfriend. And the girlfriend says, hey, just out of curiosity, you didn't happen to have killed that guy at the uh, car dealership that some people are saying that you killed, did you? And he's like, yeah, that was totally me. (laughs) And she's like, okay, we're done. <laughs> she's okay with him robbing the banks, Thanks, but, but no. But killing the guy was too far. Killing the guy, not okay. He also admits it to a friend of his. Now, I mean, not that his admissions are really that believable, but he has at least admitted that he was involved in the killing. So they that's an extra piece of the puzzle there. So this killing literally was just about stealing a car? Well, stealing the money out of the safe. He only stole the car and drove it for a block well, yeah, or two. Yeah, that's right. He did. Okay. <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. This guy's not quite right. Finally, so this is the original. The murder is 1968. We jump ahead to 2005. Robert Mitchell is now 75 years old. He lives in a group home, and he is charged with first-degree intentional homicide. The district attorney said... We know that he's the guy. We thought he was the guy for a long time. He's been cooperative. The evidence says that he's the guy. So I don't know why, but after about 40 years, they finally arrest him for this murder. He appears in court in a wheelchair. His attorneys say he needs a competency exam because they don't think he's quite right in the head. And they're probably right. Right, Yes. (laughs) They also said that he has various medical issues, physical medical issues, which is why he's in the wheelchair. So that could be a problem as well. But he did kind of sort of admit it to them. He said, well, I knew that there was a night watchman and I knew the night watchman normally left at the time of the murder. So there shouldn't have been anybody there. So I don't know if he's completely admitting to it, but at least he seems to know what's what was going on there. The court commissioner sets a $500,000 bond for him, um, which is a pretty significant amount of money. And I'm assuming he can't pay that. And he can't pay it. He says, I'm putting this high bond on you because I think it would be safe to say that you are a career criminal. (laughs) (laughs) I think that would also be fair to say. Now, here's the strange thing. He's facing a mandatory life in prison. Pretty much everybody kind of thinks that he did it. He more or less admits that he does it, but... Guess what happens? He gets off. Not even he gets off. They actually end up dropping the charges. And was this just because he was because he was the, sick? In, and because, he was what seventy five years old? Yeah, you said so. Yeah. They they decide. You know what? He's not healthy enough to go on trial. So we're gonna drop the charges. And 
to their uh, you know to their defense, I guess they were right. He does end up dying a short time after this, so he probably would not have made it through trial. But he officially never ends up getting convicted of a murder that we're pretty sure that he did. And he pretty much admitted he did. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So this guy, you know, he not that he didn't serve a ton of time in prison because he did, but he's officially on the record not a murderer, even though he is. The the one thing that blows me in my mind my mind about the story is I'm trying to play through in my head. If this is just about a robbery, mm-hmm. why does he shoot him the second time? I don't know. Because, I mean, that sounds... He's just nuts. That just sounds cold-blooded. <laughs> I yeah. mean, the only... Unless you play it as, well, I shot him and he wasn't dead. And I figured I'd put him out of the misery. Because I would be kind of compassionate. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. But at least... This is based off of the newspaper accounts. I don't have the police report for this. So based off the, the newspaper accounts, I mean... He was definitely dead after the first shot. Whether he knew he was dead after the first shot, I don't know. But he was definitely dead after the first shot. And so he, But he's not right in the head. I mean, he's definitely yeah, not. I Well, I mean, he's admitting to crimes that he didn't commit. And, he's admitting I mean, to crimes he didn't do. He ends up holding two city park employees <laughs> at gunpoint to get a ride into town. I mean, he's... He's not thinking these things through. Ooh, very. Yeah. Not a good criminal. Let's not just a good go criminal, no. Whether he was involved in those other things that they suspected him of, I don't know. But I I kind of think he probably was. Well, I mean, another shining example of the people. <laughs> Come on. Um, and just, that's that's it for the story. But one, one final piece of that is bank robbery is a federal crime. Murder is a state crime. And because bank robbery is a federal crime, that means these bank robberies should have FBI files. And I'll be putting out a request for those. That won't affect this podcast. But for the people who actually go to the website and read the notes, sooner or later, I should have an updated version of the story with a little bit more detail on some of this. Have you have you submitted for these FBI files yet or is it just yeah. on your list? No, I have, but I mean it, it's so, a very slow process. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. So like I because if you haven't submitted for them, I figure it's going to be like a year before you get them It could anyway, be. So. It could be a year, yeah. So I mean, don't go looking for the update anytime soon, but just saying I do intend to expand on this at some point, it won't really change the story, but there will be a little bit more detail with like interviews from the people in the bank and that sort of thing. So, and maybe as you're doing this, maybe if you build up a big stockpile of them, we should look at like doing an episode of updates. Oh, yeah, that's you definitely know, an option. Yeah, we could do something like that. Definitely. Um, one more question that did pop into my head you said this happened in 68. 68. So, now you just talked about a lot of bank robberies in this area. Around or, or, a relatively the same amount of time. Right. These, these are all in like 67, 68. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So is bank robbery just a big thing in, at this point in time? Where the, or I mean, Well, I don't know if it was a big thing, but I will tell you, I'm, I'm glad you asked because this was a conversation I had recently while I was working on this episode in that it strikes me as interesting what goes into people's memories and what doesn't like our collective memories mm-hmm. because Kakana had a bank robbery way back in the 1930s 
So, you know, 90 years ago at this point. And it comes up. Like, people will mention it. People have heard of this bank robbery 90 years later. I had never heard of the Sherwood bank robbery, Mm -hmm. you know, which is 50 years ago or something. Yeah. You know, there's people who are potentially alive who could have been at the bank at the time. It's not that long ago, but I've never heard of it. And so I don't know that there were more bank robberies at that time, that there was a sudden rush of bank robberies in the area. I don't know that. But I do find it interesting that it apparently wasn't something that everybody was like, we're going to talk about this for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Whereas I would think if I'm in a bank that's getting robbed, that's going to be something I'm never forgetting. Yeah. And like when you started this story, it made sense that if Robert Mitchell had committed all of these bank robberies, I could see, okay, well, there's one guy that's going around and robbing banks, but there's other people doing a lot of these robberies. So it's just kind of, it's strange to me that, that so many bank robberies would happen and so many other people, like it almost had to have been a thing Yeah, where, you know, maybe this was just the banks hadn't gotten their security to the point where it needed to be. And this was just a really good time to be robbing banks. Similar to like when we talked about, um, Wayne, the guy that got killed in Fond du Lac at the gas station. And at that point okay. in time, it was a really good time to hit up a little small town gas station. Right, because, right. I mean, you knew there was just going to be that guy there. And you knew that it, there was going to be nobody around. There was going to be minimal lighting. I mean, yeah. it was just a target waiting to be hit, you know. That was a good callback, by the way. Yeah. That's that's Wayne Pratt. Yeah, Wayne th- Pratt. Thank Wayne you. Pratt. Thank you for that's that callback. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there was a a rash of service station, gas station robberies around that time. And it does strike me as odd that there was this this, uh, bank robbery thing because now the bank robberies aren't really a thing anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, One, because there's cameras everywhere. But two, people don't deal in cash anymore. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to buy something, you're going to use a credit card. You're not going to take out $5,000 in cash. Mm-hmm. So people aren't carrying huge amounts of money anymore. But it is interesting because, I mean, back in like the Depression days, like 1930s, banks were getting robbed all the time. I mean, that's – there's obviously there's like the big names like, you know, John Dillinger and stuff. But it wasn't just Don, John Dillinger. Like there were banks getting robbed by people all over Holy the place. place. By the 60s, I don't know that that was as big of a thing. I'm not familiar enough to really give that a firm answer, but it did strike me as odd. Yeah. And that strikes me as really odd too, because it's just like, yeah, we don't live in a big community in the fact that, I mean, you talked about Sherwood and where was the other one? Uh, Howard's Grove. Howard's Grove. And then there was one in Kenosha and, and all not connected. Well, they were kind of connected but there was I, I different- think the Howard's Grove and the Sherwood one are debatably connected, connected yeah. but but yeah that just is weird so yeah I, I do find it odd because I mean I, I spend a fair amount of time researching crime and I especially most of the crime that I research is like federal level crime because I I dig primarily in FBI reports I mean should know and if they don't I mean obvious from the other podcasts that we do. Mm-hmm. And you would think if, if bank robberies were a thing, I would see that more often. And I really don't. Yeah. And that's, that's true because if it was a thing and if it was really easy to do, I feel like the mafia would have been involved in it. Very rarely. 
Yeah. Very so, rarely does bank robbery come up in my mafia research. So, so it's in, happened, in, in, but it's but not maybe they're ju- maybe that was just not something they never got into. That yeah, because all right, well, it's another good good story featuring another great person from Kakana, Wisconsin. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, hey, maybe next time, maybe next time there'll be more people from Kakana, Wisconsin. <laughs> there probably will. Be. I know. I know. I've got at least one more. Uh, that's uh, being worked on. So, all right. Well, do you got anything else? No, no. not really. Um, I mean, like I kind of said earlier, I mean, the story's a little hard to follow at times, and I apologize for that. But this guy's like inserting himself into some weird, random right. situations. Yeah. Uh, the overall story is it's pretty basic. It's He's committing crimes and then admitting to crimes Oops. he's not really involved in, but pretty confident we can say that he was the killer here so well all right then that'll wrap this episode up we will be back in two weeks with another episode and as always if you enjoy this podcast please leave us a feedback on your favorite podcast player if by chance you're not listening to milwaukee mafia please do check out milwaukeemafia.com there's a podcast all about the milwaukee mafia on Mm -hmm. there uh featuring both of us as as well So, and thanks everybody for the support and we'll see you on the next episode. All right. Sounds good to me. Thanks for tuning in to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. Join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem.